0: We are in uh, the book of Hebrews. We've only got two weeks left in Hebrews, so if you have a Bible, grab it and turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews is, is almost the very back of your Bible. I mean, there it is. There's not much else uh, behind Hebrews. And um I just realized I have my gum. That's like public speaking 101. Don't chew your gum, so it's right there. I'll have it when I'm, I'm done, okay? But uh, Hebrews... Uh, was a letter written to a a, a small, probably house church in the city of Rome, you know, the biggest city in the world at the time. And uh, this was struggling Christians. And and so we've called this series Crisis of Faith because they they were in a crisis. Is it worth following this Jesus? And so we've been asking these questions. And really, when we picked this uh, book of the Bible to study, the reason that we studied it Uh, was because of chapter 11, which we'll be looking at today, which is a famous chapter in the Bible. It's a, a, a common called the Hall of Fame of Faith, the Roll Call of Faith. And as you'll see, it just goes person after person after person by faith. They pleased God. They were commended by God. By faith, we are saved. And so this is really, we've been building here for 13 weeks. It's all to get to this point. So I'm very excited to get here, and uh, I'm very excited to go through. But we've got a lot of work to do, so we're just going to get right to it. First of all, let me just say, uh, the Seahawks game, like, what? Like, okay. (laughs) Like, I just got to be honest about this, okay? I got to be honest. I had lost faith completely i had started cleaning up i was packing my bag it was gone my faith was gone and what's so funny is that what we're talking about today is like what does it look like to cultivate a faith that has endurance today my faith did not have endurance and i gave up on them of course too soon so go hawks okay I thought I'd share that. But this is also a big week in Seattle sports history because if you grew up here, uh, you guys might not even know who this is, but there was a a kid, really, named Ken Griffey Jr. who made his way into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And uh, that's a big deal for us in Seattle because we don't have a lot of Hall of Famers around these parts, you know. Most people try to like get out of here uh, because of the rain and so they don't stay long enough and so they get inducted into the Hall of Fame if they do with another team like that's in Florida or California or something. Uh, but Ken Griffey Jr., uh, he's uh, selected into, into the, to the Hall of Fame for baseball and uh, so I was thinking about this idea of Hall of Fame, right? And it's interesting that I'm preaching on the Hall of Fame of faith. Now here's the deal about Hall of Fames. So if you know anything about Hall of Fames, so you don't get into the Hall of Fame by being a one-and-done kind of cat. Like, you could have, like, the best statistical season in any sport that you're a part of, and it could be, like, twice as good as anyone else that's ever become. But if it's only one year, if you're one-and-done, you're not making it into the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame is really a place to celebrate people who have lifetime achievement, whose success had great endurance, who persevered year after year after year. And so when you get into the Hall of Fame, it's usually because you're a person of endurance. thinking about this week, of course, the Hall of Fame of Faith. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to actually turn to chapter 12 of Hebrews. Chapter 12 of Hebrews. And the first two verses of chapter 12 are actually the summary in my opinion, of chapter 11. They're kind of like the so what of chapter 11. So like any great TV series or movie, we're just going to take a look at the snippet of the very end of the passage as a tease so that you'll pay attention through the long <laughs> chapter 11. So here we go. Let's read the first verse of chapter 12, which says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So this week, before, uh, uh, before I started writing my sermon, uh, because I wanted to understand what does this look like to run a race with endurance, here's uh, what I did. I sent out an email survey to all the people that I know in my life who are endurance athletes. My wife is an endurance athlete. She's run marathons. Uh, she was a soccer player. So I asked her as well. And uh, the reason I had to send out a survey is because I myself am not an endurance athlete at all. I mean, like, I'm so quick to give up. I'm like, man, my, weight, my legs feel heavy. I mean, this idea of weight is so... Uh, It makes sense to me. I'm like, yeah, this body's heavy. Why would I run? (laughs) Man is, technology is great. We have this automobile, the engine. I was like, use that. So I had to email people, and I asked them, what's the secret? What's the special sauce to being a great endurance athlete? And um, I asked runners, and I asked bikers, and I asked triathletes. And uh, there was a lot of common threads, a lot of common themes, and some of them I'll talk about as we go through the sermon. But there's definitely, the one thing I'll say now is there's definitely a different way of thinking if you want to be a good endurance athlete. Now I was, I was an okay athlete, but I, w- I wouldn't call myself an endurance athlete, it's like a sprint athlete, you know? I'm like a dog, like I see a ball, I can get there pretty quick, but if I see a squirrel, I'm distracted. Endurance athletes have this focus, they have this intentionality, they have this ability to work through pain. And why do we need that? Why do we need that if we want to endure in a life of faith? Well, because the weight is heavy. Expectations are heavy. Failure is a real possibility. Our legs get heavy because we're out of shape. Our heart gets heavy Because of sin. And here's the deal with sin. Like when I run, I'm always looking for a shortcut. I'm always looking for a way to get to the end without having to go through the trial. That's a great definition for sin trying to find a shortcut to the promises of God. How do we be great endurance? athletes of faith that's what i want to look at this week and so let's flip now to the beginning of chapter 11 here we go right off the bat we're going to get this great definition of faith the writer of hebrews says this now faith is the assurance of things hoped for The conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Now here's what's interesting. This word assurance, actually in the Greek, elsewhere in Hebrews, actually is translated substance. In Hebrews 1, the author talks about Jesus is of the same nature, the same substance as God the Father. And so the question in the debate among scholars is, well, what is he talk- is he talking about assurance? And assurance is much, uh, much more this idea, it's a subjective idea? Or is it substance, which is much more of an objective idea? So what is it? I think there's a combination of both, no doubt, when it comes to faith. But actually, I think here, I like the King James translation, which reads like this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And the reason I think uh, there's something more than just the subjective view here and an objective view is because faith is actually a thing that has weight in our lives. It actually means something. It actually moves something. Right? And so, what you see here when he's talking about faith, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, things what? In the future, but it's the conviction of things not seen. And so, as we go through, what we'll see is faith for people always actually moves them to action. And so, there's this time element. Though it's a future thing that's hoped for, the faith in that future thing has very present reality for the person very present weight very present propulsion to get them going and keep them going in the right direction so uh, one scholar ff F. bruce says this and we'll see as we go into verse two he's talking uh, he's going to go into this role call this hall of fame of old testament saints so ff F. bruce says this for the old testament saints faith consisted of simply taking god at his word and directing their lives accordingly, so that things yet future as far as their experience went were thus present to faith. See what's going on? Things that were future as far as their experience went were present to their faith. It's this crazy idea. Uh, F.F. Bruce goes on to say this. I think this is good. Things outwardly unseen, unseen, were visible to the inward eye. That's the eye of faith. So faith is this objective thing, this objective ability that we have when we're given the gift of faith by God. And we see that elsewhere in Scripture. Faith is actually a gift given by God, not something that we conjure up on our own. But he gives us this gift to be able to apprehend things that are not visible to the normal eye. Their future, yet they're present in their effect. It's very important to understand this part of faith. And uh, again and again and again, what you see in the New Testament is that faith is what saves. Not your actions, but faith. But then you also see that faith always leads to actions. James chapter 2. Now, If faith is in something that's unseen, is the author here, is he teaching that faith is blind? Is he saying the best kind of faith is blind faith? I think it's important just quickly to think about that. R.C. Sproul says this. The idea is this. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, but I know that God knows what tomorrow is going to bring. So if God promises that tomorrow will bring something, and if I trust God for tomorrow... I have faith in something that I have not yet seen. That faith serves as evidence because its object is God. I know him. He has a track record. He is infallible. He never lies. God knows everything and is in, is perfect in whatever he communicates. So if God tells me that something is going to happen tomorrow, I believe it even though I haven't seen it yet. That's not credulity. That's not irrationality. On the contrary, it is irrational not to believe something that God says regarding some future event. End quote. So what we're believing in is God. What we're believing in is God. God is tangible. God is observable in the sense of we've seen what he's done Historically, he has a track record. We can consider the events associated with God. We can consider his word. And this is what we ground our hope in. This is why our faith has substance. Is this making sense? So I think it's important to say, in a sense, faith in God is blind. We don't see God. But it's not irrational. In fact, it's very rational. It's very measured. It's very objective because we're believing in a God who we know, and is worthy of our trust. So R.C. Sproul also says this. Faith, is scripture, in scriptural terms, is not believing in God. This is, this is key. Is not believing in God, but believing God and living according to his word. Does that make sense? Okay. I think this is very, very important. Now we also know that time and time again, and we talked about this uh, right before Christmas, that visible evidence, physical evidence, eyewitness testimony, that's a huge part of what it means to be a Christian. And so the Bible never teaches we should just close our eyes, or if somebody brings us tangible, visible, physical evidence, we should shut it because it's better to have blind faith. Really important to understand that's, that's not what's going on here. So let's look at uh, verse 2. For by it, that's faith, the people of of old received their commendation. The people of old received their commendation. Here's what it's saying. Jump down to verse 6 as well. And without faith it is what? Impossible to please God. Him. Impossible to please God. So, this idea of receiving your commendation from God and pleasing God, it's all not because of your actions, it's because of your faith. And as I thought about this week, I thought, man, this is so true for us as well as human beings, right? Like in my marriage, when I ask Allie to do some action, it's not As pleasing to me, just if she does what I ask her to do, if the whole way she's distrusting me, she doesn't have faith in me, she's doing it begrudgingly. Because what? Because I realize that she doesn't have faith in me. So it's not pleasing even if she does the thing. And I know for a fact that when I do something that she wants me to do, but I do it, kicking and screaming the whole way, it's not pleasing to her because it tells her that I don't trust her, that I don't trust her discretion and her wisdom, that I don't have faith in her. And so we experience this too, like wanting somebody to believe in us and have faith in us is incredibly valuable to us, probably the most valuable thing in the world. Well, it's the most valuable thing to God as well. So it shouldn't surprise us that what pleases Him is our faith, not our actions. Okay. Now, what happens? So we've got verse 1, verse 2. This is what faith is, and God loves faith. We're saved by faith, it pleases Him. Then what we'll see is we enter into this long string of examples, examples of faith. And the first one is kind of this abstract example of why trusting God at His Word is valuable. So look at it with me. Verse 3. This is the first by faith. And in, in this term you'll hear it again and again. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of that, or out of things that are visible. What is is he saying here? By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Here's what's going on. If you read Genesis, what you see is that God literally speaks creation into existence, okay? Theologians call this creation ex nihilo which is Latin for creation out of nothing. So the idea is this. And what's so interesting is that modern science, right, and the the Big Bang Theory, they kind of work it back all the way back until this moment when it seems like the universe jumped into existence, the Big Bang Theory. Now here's the deal. They don't really know how it went from nothing to something. Does anybody know how that happened? Well, the Bible says we know how it happened. There was an invisible God who himself is not physical and material and he spoke creation into existence. And science actually proves that appears to be the way it happened. Okay. Why is this so important? What's the big deal? Why is he bringing this up? Here's the main point. If this is true... That the visible came out of the invisible, what is it saying? What came first? What is prime reality? Is it the visible or is it the invisible? It's the invisible. Which is to say there are things that are invisible that are more real than the things that are invisible or that are visible. Now, this is so counterintuitive to our scientific culture because we think if we can't see it, it doesn't exist. But in fact, the idea here is that it's more real, the invisible. So the idea that we could have faith in something that we have not seen is not counter to logic. In fact, it makes sense that there's a thing that can be tapped into the invisible realities and promises of God that are real in a way that only makes them real because God's promised them. Okay? Hopefully that's clear, at least more clear than mud. Here we go. So now we go into this long string, and he's starting right from the beginning of the Bible, and it says this, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What's going on? If you don't know who Cain is, Cain Cain is the first son of Adam and Eve, the the first parents. And Abel is the second son of Adam and Eve. And what happens is God uh, commands Cain and Abel to bring him sacrifice. And they both bring him sacrifice And what happens is God accepts and is pleased by Abel's sacrifice and he's not pleased by Cain's sacrifice. And it's a little bit of a confusing account, but here's the basic idea and Hebrews helps us understand. Abel brought his sacrifice in faith. His heart was right. Cain brought his sacrifice not in faith. His heart was wrong. He was just acting, not out of faith. And so it was not pleasing to God. And it says here, That though Abel died, because here's how the story goes, Cain doesn't like it that his little brother pleased God, and he didn't. And so he goes, and he murders his brother. So though Cain dies, he still speaks. Well, it seems like Abel, his lineage doesn't continue on because he's died Cain's does. Didn't Cain win in the end? No, because there are invisible realities and promises that we don't know about. And it says right here, he still speaks because of his faith. So faith transcends even murder, even a shortened life. Faith transcends it. Okay, let's keep going. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now here's, this is like Bible 101. Okay, you may have never heard of Enoch. Enoch's this dude, there's this lineage from uh, Seth, who was the next son born to Adam and Eve, and it goes through, and it it says, uh, Cain's descendants were not righteous, and, and Seth's were, and it goes back and forth, back and forth, and then you come to this guy named Enoch, and we don't know a ton about him, but it says that God took him up, he did not see death, Which means he was literally like translated from this life into life to come. He never experienced physical death. He was translated up into heaven, into the presence of God. Now look at what it says. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. How? By his faith, it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Enoch was a guy who believed God exists. In fact, probably that what was happening is Enoch was walking around, because it said Enoch walked with God. He was probably one of those cats that would walk down the street talking to God out loud, but nobody could see God, and people probably thought he was crazy. Now, it's kind of cute when a five-year-old talks to an invisible friend, but when a 65-year-old does it, we wonder what's going on. But Enoch walked with God, talked with God, and was taken up by God. And so in the face of ridicule, it's Enoch's faith that transcends. Even death, even ridicule. Let's keep going. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. We all heard of Noah. It's pretty funny <laughs> that we have like kids pajamas with Noah and the ark on it because the story of Noah is kind of gruesome because a flood comes and kills all of humanity except Noah and his family and the animals that he brings on the ark. <laughs> so... I don't know if that's funny to you, but it's like you're putting your kids down to a bedtime, and you're like, oh, Noah, yes, he was the only one that made it through the flood. I mean, that's a tough conversation. How do you tell that story? But it's so cute because there's so many animals, and we love stories with animals. Don't we? Okay. Now, here's the deal. You've got to think of Noah here. He's obviously he's in the Hall of Fame of Faith. Why? Because this dude was told by God, God, God gave him a word and said, I want you to build this boat, and I want you to build this boat uh, 500 times larger than you need to fit your family. And so imagine Noah in the middle of the desert, um, hundreds and hundreds of miles from the nearest ocean, building a boat 500 times too big for his family. Imagine what everybody around him was thinking about Noah. He said, God told me to build this boat, and people are just laughing at him. But Noah proved to be righteous by faith. Faith in the promises of God. Could you imagine the years as they went by and Noah was building this boat? Are you sure, God? Did did I hear you wrong? You heard me right, Noah. Keep building. And then the rain came. Noah transcended the laughter, the ridicule himself of his peers and had faith to trust in God's promise and so saved his family and saved mankind. That's powerful faith. Now, verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go from this uh, go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as, a, uh, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And this is the story of Abraham. Abraham. Abraham's this guy that God comes to and he says, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave all the comfort of your home and I want you to go to this place. And he says, where's the place? He says, I'll tell you when you get there. And he just starts walking. And he's walking through the desert and he's going by faith. And he's living in tents. And God's promised. And it says he was looking forward to a city that has foundations. But you know what? Abraham never saw the finished city. He never got to live in the city that God had promised him. But he knew the designer and the builder was God. And here's the deal. When you build a house, you don't know what the final product will actually look like, but you trust somebody, don't you? You trust the designer and the builder of your house. That's who you trust. So if you don't trust the designer and the builder of the house, it doesn't matter how much faith you have if that builder is a bad builder. But but Abraham knew God would build. He never saw it, but he trusted by faith. Verse 11, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him, that's God, faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, that's Abraham, and him as good as dead, that means he was really, really old, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. God tells Abraham, go to this place, I'm going to create a city and I'm going to create a nation out of you. And year after year, and they got very, very, very old. Past childbearing age, they got old and still no son. But they kept believing, it says, and by faith, Sarah received the power to conceive. See, faith has substance, faith has power, and it was by Sarah's faith that she was able to conceive. And she came to bear a son, and they named him Isaac, and he's playing piano here for us tonight. Can you believe it? No. But here's the deal. So they did have a son, but just one. Abraham didn't get to see grains of sands as innumerable as those on the shore. He saw one grain. (laughs) One grain is all he saw of this promise. But he never lost his faith. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar... And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they were seeking a homeland. If they, had not, uh, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." Here's what they're saying. Abraham never saw these promises. Abel never saw these promises. Sarah never saw these promises. But they believed that they had a home that wasn't just an earthly home, but a heavenly home. And they believed the unseen promises of God because they knew His character. And because He spoke it, they trusted Him. They didn't just believe in God, they believed God. And you know what God says? I am not ashamed to be called their God. Oh. to have God be pleased with us, and not ashamed to call us His God. Verse seventeen. We got a lot to go, a lot of by faiths. <laughs> by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac his son. And he who had received the promises was in in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, look at this, he considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Here's how the story goes. He waits and waits and waits, decades and decades, for this promise of a son And a great nation to come. And you know what happens after he gets the son? God says, I want you to take him up to a mountain and I want you to sacrifice him to me. I want you to slay your son. I want you to spill his blood to prove to me that you love me. What? Yes. Go to the mountain. And you know what Abraham did? By faith, he went to the mountain. And this is so interesting here. The reason that he was able to, and it got to the point where his son is tied down on the rock and he has the knife up and he's about to strike down his son his only son, and God says stop, and he gives him a ram, sacrifice that instead, I know that you love me. Now what's so crazy about this story, it isn't that that, that Abraham was willing to give up his son, it was that he had so much faith in God that he knew if he killed his son, God had the power to raise him back from the dead. That's crazy. Do you have that much faith? I don't think I do. Now we'll see as we get to the end of this passage how important that is to understand that that believing God could even raise someone from the dead. How important that is in the story of Jesus. Okay. Moving along. Here we go. It's like a survey course. Verse What are we at? Verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on his son Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave them directions concerning his bones. These are all unseen realities to them, but they had faith in them. Verse 23. By faith, Moses when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Moses was a Jew and Pharaoh had said, kill all the newborns because he'd heard a prophecy. And so... Moses' parents didn't and they floated him down the river and he was found by Pharaoh's daughter and he ends up being raised in the palace and he becomes one of the most powerful people in Egypt, the biggest superpower in the world at the time. And look what it says about Moses. He had everything. By faith, Moses, when he he was grown up, look at this, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, the better reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So the whole story of Moses, he has everything. He could live out his life in complete and utter pleasure and comfort, and he chooses rather to go be with a despised slave nation of Israel, living under the hand and the rule of Pharaoh. And then he leaves, and then God calls him back. He says... Moses, I'm using you to free my people, and Moses leads the Exodus. This is where we get the Passover. All the time, God saying, Moses, do this, and he believed him at his word, and he did it. Verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they encircled it for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had been given a friendly welcome to the spies, the spies of Israel. So many stories here, can't tell them all. Verse 32, "And And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, and Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the uh, power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Oh. Again and again and again. What he's saying is everything that happens in the Old Testament, every time you see God show up, every time you see something commendable, something that pleases God, something that moves the mission forward, it's always because of their faith. Not because of their skill, not because of their intellect, not because of their action, but because of their faith. It's always been about faith. From the beginning, Every single person of God who was saved was saved by faith, even before Christ came because the promises of God had already been established. Christ would come, saved through Christ by faith. Oh, this is a true, true gospel message over and over again. Now, look at verse 35. He begins to talk now about his contemporaries, those in the church after, after Jesus died and rose again. He says this, Don't you know that women received back their dead by resurrection? Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffering, mocking, and flogging, and even chains of imprisonment. And they were stoned, and they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword, and they went in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Why? Hiding because of their faith in Jesus. So too, those in the age of the church have lost lives. Even those today continue to lose their life because of their faith in Jesus. Because they won't renounce His name, because they won't say, Jesus is not the Savior. Verse thirty-nine, and all these who commended through, uh, through, uh, sorry, and all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. This is the verse that I wrestled with all week. What does it mean to be made perfect? through not receiving the promises of God. Here's the big idea. When you read this chapter, don't think of faith this way. Because this is not faith. Faith is not receiving a promise of God and giving God the credit. Now we should do that, but that's not faith. Faith is not receiving the promises of God and still believing that He'll bring them. That's faith, and that's what the Hall of Fame is all about, that people were doing this over and over again, year after year, trusting God at His Word, even though they never received. Even when they died, they had not received the promises. And why had they not received the promises? There's two reasons. On Friday, as I, as I was struggling through this, um, I had sent out my survey, and then my brother-in-law, Patrick, Patrick was uh, the husband of my sister, Kim, who passed away in 2007. Patrick has been a competitive cyclist for many, uh, many years, and so I put him on my survey. What does it mean to be um, an endurance athlete? And uh, what he said kind of stuck with me. He talked about it this way. He said, every competitive endurance athlete I know is a little bit crazy. When it comes down to this, the ability to focus on the pain... The pain at hand. And to be able to deal with it. So you actually start to enjoy putting yourself through the pain. Why? Not for pain's sake, but because the benefit is so great both physically and emotionally. And so he talked about when he would ride, the longer and longer he'd be able to work through the troubles of his life physically, emotionally. And he's been through a lot. He lost his wife. Suddenly tragically. And so I believe him when he says he's able to focus on the pain. And there's something on the other side of it that's greater that he wouldn't be able to experience without it. I think the first reason how, uh, the first way that we learn to be endurance athletes of faith is by learning not to avoid the pain or Pretend the pain doesn't exist or put it out, but to see the pain and know that on the other side of the struggle, of the pain, of the waiting, of the perseverance, is something that's better, is being made perfect as you wait, as the saints of old, as the hall of fame of saints, as they waited, as they saw the pain for what it was, but yet kept going there's something on the other side so we see that with Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and Moses they had lots of pain lots of suffering lots of waiting lots of perseverance lots of not yet fulfilled promises even when they died but they knew that there was some reason for it. that God is not just some evil dictator trying to inflict pain, but he had a reason for not yet fulfilling. And what is that reason? That's the other important thing to knowing how to become an endurance athlete. The reason is caught up in the word uh, in these words. Look at verse forty again. Since God had provided something better for who, for us. For who? For us. That apart from us they should not be made perfect. That the saints of old should not be made perfect apart from us. What does he mean here? This this is it. This is the most amazing part of this passage. If you checked out, check right back in here. The reason that God waits and and He makes the saints of old wait with all of these unfulfilled promises, the reason is us. The reason is us us. God's plan of salvation included us, and so we must wait. God's plan of salvation included the Gentiles, not just the Jews, so he had to wait. God's plan of salvation included the Romans, it includes Norwegians, it includes the Chinese and Brazilians and Africans, it includes even Americans, and oh yeah, Canadians too. I love Canada. But in order for Americans like us to be included, God had to be patient. God had to wait to fulfill his promises. And so too, the saints had to wait. You see that? God had to wait for Abraham to have his offspring for His offspring to have offspring, to multiply and multiply until the perfect time presented itself in human history for Him to come into human history through His Son. And He waited till the moment was right because the moment had to be then because He was always going to go to a Roman cross. And oh yeah, there was something important about Rome. They made all these roads. They were the great road builders. And so the Gospel came, Christ came, At the right time. So that it could go out. To who? To the nations. Including us. And it went out. And it continues to go out. And Jesus died on the cross. Making atonement for our sin. And then he sent out his message of forgiveness. That anybody that trusts in Jesus. His death on the cross. And his resurrection. Anyone has the chance to be redeemed. Restored relationship with God. Forgiveness of sin. Eternal life in the new homeland. All because God was patient. All because the saints were patient. And they didn't ever demand God give them the promises now. But they said, God, we trust you at your word. We know that there's a reason you're asking us to wait. That's why they're in the Hall of Fame. Does that make sense? It's because of us that God waits patiently to come again. Because when He comes again, the chance is gone. When He comes again, He's coming for perfect judgment. He's coming to judge the injustice of the world. He's coming to judge sin. But He waits because He wants us to be involved. If He hadn't waited, we would not be included in His kingdom. And I believe tonight that there's probably... Somebody in this room who if God hadn't waited, if He had come tomorrow, that tonight they would never have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they never would have given their life to Him. So thank you for waiting. And if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, persevere endure, long suffer, because there's somebody that God is trying to reach, probably somebody that you know, and you say, thank you, God, for waiting to fulfill all your promises. I'm okay. I can handle it. I can push forward. I can see the pain. I can go through it because I trust you that someday you will come back. You will fulfill your promises. Oh, God, that I would be in the Hall of Fame of Faith because I endured well. I'm not there yet. We're not there as a church are we going to be a one-and-done church, one year of faithfulness? Or are we going to go year after year waiting and pushing in in the suffering of what it means to be the church in a city like Seattle? Are we going to give in? Are we going to step back? Are we going to let the culture take over? Or are we going to step in and stay in the torrent? Are we going to fight back, knowing that it's going to hurt, knowing that the pain is real, Oh, that we wouldn't be one and done. That we'd have a Hall of Fame career as a church. Oh, there's better promises, you guys. There's better promises than comfort. There's better promises than being in the royal family. There's better promises, and God wants to bring them to you. He wants to bring them to us, but we must endure. Okay, here's my application. If you're like me, you're probably struggling to have faith in the unseen promises of God. You're probably confused. You're probably frustrated. Why is God not fulfilling the promises He has given me? Why is He not giving me that perfect relationship that I've been waiting for forever? Why is He not giving me that job promotion? Why is He not healing me from that physical or mental disease? Why is He take, taking so long to give me the dreams that He's put into my head? Why is he making me wait? If you're like me, you struggle to believe that God has a better plan. That for some reason, unknown to you, requires you to wait and to suffer right now because there's something better to come. I know this. I would never have met my wife. I didn't marry her until I was 30 years old. I didn't think I'd be 30 when I got married. But he said, wait. Wait and a better promise came along. So he tells us to wait. Will we listen? Will we believe God? Or will we take matters into our own hands? Will we take a shortcut to his promises? He calls that sin. God, give us power to be faithful people. The other thing that I heard when I uh, took this survey of endurance athletes is they said this. They said sometimes, in fact most of the time they said, you can't focus solely on the end goal, on the biggest prize. You have to create small milestones along the way, and you push for them, and then you pick another one, and you push for that, and then you pick another one, and you push for that. In fact, my wife said she actually looks at her feet, and she thinks of every step as a milestone. And she can run 26 miles. I can only run one. (laughs) Maybe the secret in trusting the final, final promises of God is looking for those little promises fulfilled along the way and saying, yes, he's still with me. Yes, he hasn't forsaken me. Yes, he's telling me, keep going. And when we realize, when we look to the great cloud of witnesses, we realize that it's true that we can run further than we thought. They've run races that we'll never have to run, that are much harder and much tougher. And you get to chapter 12, verse 2, and look what it says. There is one yet person in this cloud of witness who is the person that we should look to most. Verse 2, chapter 12 says this. Looking to who? To Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of God. He seated in the throne room because he endured more than anyone. He endured something he did not have to endure. He waited patiently. He trusted God at his word. And here's the thing. We think of Jesus, yes, he can endure because he's the Son of God, but no, he put on full humanity. He wore the same humanity that we wore, so he actually turned off his ability to see the things of the future, and he had to trust like we trust in the Word of God. And the Father told him, go here, go there, and ultimately go to the cross and die. And remember what I said about Abraham's faith. Jesus had the same dilemma. How could I go to the cross and die? And you know what he said? I trust that God is powerful enough to raise me from the dead. And so he went And this time, He was the substitute. He was the Lamb. And He did die. He didn't know what was coming three days later. Not in the way we think He did. He knew by faith. He knew the unseen thing because of faith in God. So we look to Him and we say, God, give me a faith like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for the author and perfecter of faith, for that perfect example that when we are learning to be endurance athletes, when we are seeking to develop the heart of enduring faith, that we look to Jesus and we think no one else in human history had that kind of faith, and it inspires us. And we look to Abraham and we look to Moses and we look to Abel and we look to all of the saints of old who by faith were saved, trusting in unseen promises, unseen in a way that we'll never have to see because we know of Jesus. We have Jesus in our vocabulary, but they trusted in Jesus before they even knew his name. Let us look to them and let us look to Jesus. Let us trust that God has the power even to raise us from the dead. Give us that kind of faith, Lord. Give this community that kind of faith. Help us to grow that kind of faith in in each other, encouraging one another and stirring each other up to love and good works. In Jesus' name, amen.